The Fifth Commandment Thou shalt not kill. We have now completed both the spiritual and the temporal government, that is, the divine and the paternal authority and obedience. But here now we go forth from our house among our neighbors to learn how we should live with one another, everyone himself toward his neighbor. Therefore, God and government are not included in this commandment, nor is the power to kill, which they have, taken away. For God has delegated his authority to punish evildoers to the government instead of parents, who aforetime, as we read in Moses, were required to bring their own children to judgment and sentence them to death. Therefore, what is here forbidden is forbidden to the individual in his relation to anyone else and not to the government. Now this commandment is easy enough and has been often treated because we hear it annually in the Gospel of St. Matthew 5.21 where Christ himself explains and sums it up, namely, that we must not kill neither with hand, heart, mouth, signs, gestures, help, nor counsel. Therefore it is here forbidden to everyone to be angry except those, as we said, who are in the place of God, that is, parents and the government. For it is proper for God and for everyone who is in a divine state to be angry, to reprove and punish, namely, on account of those very persons who transgress this and the other commandments. But the cause and need of this commandment is that God well knows that the world is evil and that this life has much unhappiness, Therefore he has placed this and the other commandments between the good and the evil. Now as there are many assaults upon all commandments, so it happens also in this commandment that we must live among many people who do us harm, so that we have cause to be hostile to them. As when your neighbor sees that you have a better house and home, greater possessions and fortune from God than he, he is sulky, envies you, and speaks no good of you. Thus, by the devil's incitement, you will get many enemies who cannot bear to see you have any good, either bodily or spiritual. When we see such people, our hearts in turn would rage and bleed and take vengeance. Then there arise cursing and blows, from which follow finally misery and murder. Here now, God, like a kind father, steps in ahead of us, interposes, and wishes to have the quarrel settled, so that no misfortune come of it, nor destroy it, nor one destroy another. And briefly, he would hereby protect, set free, and keep in peace everyone against the crime and violence of everyone else, and would have this commandment placed as a wall, fortress, and refuge about our neighbor, that we do him no hurt nor harm in his body. Thus this commandment aims at this, that no one offend his neighbor on account of any evil deed, even though he have fully deserved it. For where murder is forbidden, all cause also is forbidden whence murder may originate. For many a one, although he does not kill, yet curses and utters a wish, which would stop a person from running far if it were to strike him in the neck. Now, since this inheres in everyone by nature, 
and it is a common practice that no one is willing to suffer at the hands of another, God wishes to remove the root and source by which the heart is embittered against our neighbor, and to accustom us ever to keep in view this commandment, always to contemplate ourselves in it as in a mirror, to regard the will of God, and with hearty confidence and invocation of his name, to commit to him the wrong which we suffer. Thus we shall suffer our enemies to rage and be angry, doing what they can, and we learn to calm our wrath, and to have a patient, gentle heart, especially toward those who give us cause to be angry, that is, our enemies. Therefore the entire sum of what it means not to kill is to be impressed most explicitly among the simple-minded. In the first place, that we harm no one, first, with our hand, or by deed. Then, that we do not employ our tongue to instigate or counsel thereto. Further, that we neither use nor assent to any kind of means or methods whereby anyone may be injured. And finally, that the heart be not ill-disposed toward anyone, nor from anger and hatred wish him ill, so that body and soul may be innocent in regard to everyone but especially those who issue evil or inflict such upon you. For to do evil to one who wishes and does you good is not human, but diabolical. Secondly, under this commandment, not only he is guilty who does evil to his neighbor, but he also who can do him good, prevent, resist evil, defend and save him, so that no bodily harm or hurt happen to him, and yet does not do it. If, therefore, you send away one that is naked when you could clothe him, you have caused him to freeze to death. If you see one suffer hunger and do not give him food, you have caused him to starve. So also, if you see anyone innocently sentenced to death or in like distress and do not save him, although you know ways and means to do so, you have killed him. And it will not avail you to make the pretext that you did not afford any help, counsel, or aid thereto, for you have withheld your love from him and deprived him of the benefit whereby his life would have been saved. Therefore, God also rightly calls all those murderers who do not afford counsel and help in distress and danger of body and life, and will pass a most terrible sentence upon them in the last day as Christ himself has announced when he shall say, Matthew 25, 42, I was and hungered, and he gave me no meat. I was thirsty, and he gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and he took me not in. Naked, and he clothed me not. Sick and in prison, and ye visited me not. That is, you would have suffered me and mine to die of hunger, thirst, and cold, would have suffered the wild beasts to tear us to pieces, or left us to rot in prison or perish in distress. What else is that but to reproach them as murderers and bloodhounds? For although you have not actually done all this, you have nevertheless, so far as you were concerned, suffered him to pine and perish in misfortune. It is just as if I saw someone navigating and laboring in deep, deep water, or one fallen into fire, and could extend to him the hand to pull him out and save him, and yet refuse to do it. What else would I appear, even in the eyes of the world, than as a murderer and a criminal? Therefore it is God's ultimate purpose that we suffer harm to befall no man, 
but show him all good and love. And, as we have said, it is especially directed toward those who are our enemies. For to do good to our friends is but an ordinary heathen virtue, as Christ says, Matthew 5.46. Here we have again the word of God, whereby he would encourage and urge us to true, noble, and sublime works, as gentleness, patience, and, in short, love and kindness to our enemies, and would ever remind us to reflect upon the first commandment, that he is our God, that is, that he will help, assist, and protect us, in order that he may thus quench the desire of revenge in us. This we ought to practice and inculcate, and we would have our hands full doing good works. But this would not be preaching for monks, it would greatly detract from the religious estate, and infringe upon the sanctity of Carthusians, and would even be regarded as forbidding good works and clearing the convents. For in this wise the ordinary state of Christians would be considered just as worthy, and even worthier, and everybody would see how they mock and delude the world with a false hypocritical show of holiness, because they have given this and other commandments to the winds, and have esteemed them unnecessary, as though they were not commandments but mere counsels, and have at the same time shamelessly proclaimed and boasted their hypocritical estate and works as the most perfect life, in order that they might lead a pleasant, easy life, without the cross and without patience, for which reason, too, they have resorted to the cloisters, so that they might not be obliged to suffer any wrong from anyone, or to do him any good. But know now that these are the true, holy, and godly works, in which, with all the angels, he rejoices, in comparison with which all human holiness is but stench and filth, and besides deserves nothing but wrath and damnation. The Sixth Commandment Thou shalt not commit adultery. These commandments now are easily understood from the preceding, for they are all to the effect that we avoid doing any kind of injury to our neighbor. But they are arranged in fine order. In the first place, they treat of his own person. Then they proceed to the person nearest him, or the closest possession next after his body, namely his wife, who is one flesh and blood with him, so that we cannot inflict a higher injury upon him in any good that is his. Therefore, it is explicitly forbidden here to bring any disgrace upon him in respect to his wife. And it really aims at adultery, because among the Jews it was ordained and commanded that everyone must be married. Therefore also the young were early provided for, so that the virgin state was held in small esteem, Neither were public prostitution and lewdness tolerated as now. Therefore, adultery was the most common form of unchastity among them. But because among us there is such a shameful mess and the very dregs of all vice and lewdness, this commandment is directed also against all manner of unchastity, whatever it may be called. And not only is the external act forbidden, but also every kind of cause, incitement, and means so that the heart, the lips, and the whole body may be chaste and afford no opportunity, help, or persuasion to inchastity. And not only this, but that we also make resistance 
afford protection and rescue wherever there is danger and need, and again, that we give help and counsel so as to maintain our neighbor's honor. For whenever you omit this, when you could make resistance or connive at it as if it did not concern you, you are as truly guilty as the one perpetrating the deed. Thus, to state it in the briefest manner, there is required this much, that every one both live chastely himself and help his neighbor do the same, so that God by this commandment wishes to hedge round about and protect every spouse, that no one trespass against them. But since this commandment is aimed directly at the state of matrimony and gives occasion to speak of the same, you must well understand and mark first how gloriously God honors and extols this estate. Inasmuch as by his commandment, he both sanctions and guards it. He has sanctioned it above in the fourth commandment, honor thy father and thy mother. But here he has, as we said, hedged it about and protected it. Therefore, he also wishes us to honor it and to maintain and conduct it as a divine and blessed estate, because in the first place, he has instituted it before all others, and therefore created man and woman separately, as is evident, not for lewdness, but that they should live together, be fruitful, beget children, and nourish and train them to the honor of God. Therefore, God has also most richly blessed this estate above all others, and, in addition, has bestowed on it and wrapped up in it everything in the world, to the end that this estate might be well and richly provided for. Married life is therefore no jest or presumption, but it is an excellent thing and a matter of divine seriousness, for it is of the highest importance to him that persons be raised who may serve the world and promote the knowledge of God, goodly, godly living, and all virtues to fight against wickedness and the devil. Therefore I have always taught that this estate should not be despised nor held in disrepute, as is done by the blind world and our false ecclesiastics, but that it be regarded according to God's word, by which it is adorned and sanctified, so that it is not only placed on an equality with other estates, but that it precedes and surpasses them all, whether they be that of emperor, princes, bishops, or whoever they please. For both ecclesiastical and civil estates must humble themselves, and all be found in this estate, as we shall hear. Therefore it is not a peculiar estate, but the most common and noblest estate, which pervades all Christendom, yea, which extends through all the world. In the second place, you must know also that it is not only an honorable, but also a necessary state, and it is solemnly commanded by God that in general, in all conditions, men and women who were created for it shall be found in this estate. Yet, with some exceptions, although few, whom God has especially accepted, so that they are not fit for the married estate, or whom he has released by a high supernatural gift, that they can maintain chastity without this estate. For where nature has its course, as it is implanted by God, it is not possible to remain chaste without marriage. For flesh and blood remain flesh and blood, and the natural inclination and excitement have their course without let or hindrance, as everybody sees and feels. In order, therefore, that it may be the more easy in some degree to avoid inchastity, God has commanded the estate of matrimony, that everyone may have his proper portion and be satisfied therewith 
although God's grace besides is required in order that the heart may also be pure. From this you see how this popish rabble, priests, monks, and nuns resist God's order and commandment inasmuch as they despise and forbid matrimony and presume and vow to maintain perpetual chastity and besides deceive the simple-minded with lying words and appearances. For no one has so little love and inclination to chastity as just those who because of great sanctity avoid marriage and either indulge in open and shameless prostitution or secretly do even worse so that one dare not speak of it as has, alas, been learned too fully. And in short, even though they abstain from the act, their hearts are so full of unchaste and evil lusts that there is a continual burning and secret suffering which can be avoided in the married life. Therefore, all vows of chastity out of the married estate are condemned by this commandment, and free permission is granted, yea, even the command is given to all poor and snared consciences which have been deceived by their monastic vows to abandon the unchaste state and enter the married life, considering that even if the monastic life were godly, it would nevertheless not be in their power to maintain chastity, and if they remain in it, they must only sin more and more against this commandment. Now I speak of this in order that the young may be so guided that they conceive a liking for the married estate and know that it is a blessed estate and pleasing to God. For in this way we might in the course of time bring it about that married life be restored to honor and that there might be less of the filthy, dissolute, disorderly doings which now run riot the world over in open prostitution and other shameful vices arising from disregard of married life. Therefore it is the duty of parents and the government to see to it that our youth be brought up to discipline and respectability, and when they have come to years of maturity, to provide for them in the fear of God and honorably. He would not fail to add his blessing and grace, so that men would have joy and happiness from the same. Let me now say in conclusion that this commandment demands not only that everyone live chastely in thought, word, and deed in his condition, that is, especially in the estate of matrimony, but also that everyone love and esteem the spouse given him by God. For where conjugal chastity is to be maintained, man and wife must by all means live together in love and harmony, that one may cherish the other from the heart and with entire fidelity. For that is one of the principal points which enkindle love and desire of chastity, so that where this is found, chastity, chastity will follow as a matter of course without any command. Therefore also St. Paul so diligently exhorts husband and wife to love and honor one another. Here you have again a precious, yea, many and great good works, of which you can joyfully boast, against all ecclesiastical estates, chosen without God's word and commandment. The Seventh Commandment Thou shalt not steal. After your person and spouse, temporal property comes next. That also God wishes to have protected, and he has commanded that no one shall subtract from or curtail his neighbor's possessions. For to steal is nothing else than to get possession of another's property wrongfully, which briefly comprehends all kinds of advantage in all sorts of trade to the disadvantage of our neighbor. Now this is indeed quite a widespread and common vice, 
but so little regard and, and observed that it exceeds all measure, so that if, if all who are thieves and yet do not wish to be called such were to be hanged on gallows, the world would soon be devastated, and there would be a lack both of executioners and gallows. For as we have just said, to steal is to signify not only to empty our neighbor's coffer and pockets, but to be grasping in the market, in all stores, booths, wine and beer cellars, workshops, and in short, wherever there is trading or taking and giving of money or for merchandise or labor. As for instance, to explain this somewhat grossly for the common people, that it may be seen how godly we are. When a manservant or maidservant does not serve faithfully in the house and does damage, or allows it to be done when it could be prevented, or otherwise ruins and neglects the goods entrusted to him from indolence, idleness, and malice, to the spite and vexation of master and mistress, and in whatever way this can be done purposely, for I do not speak of what happens from oversight and against one's will, you can in a year abscond thirty, forty florins, which if another had taken secretly or carried away, he would be hanged with the rope. But here you may even bid defiance and become insolent, and no one dare call you a thief. The same I say also of mechanics, workmen, and day laborers, who all follow their wanton notions and never know enough ways to overcharge people, while they are lazy and unfaithful in their work. All these are far worse than sneak thieves, against whom we can guard with locks and bolts, or who, if apprehended, are treated in such a manner that they will not do the same again. But against these no one can guard. No one dare even look awry at them or accuse them of theft, so that one would ten times rather lose from his purse. For here are my neighbors, good friends, my own servants, from whom I expect good, who defraud me first of all. Furthermore, in the market, and in common trade likewise, this practice is in full swing and force to the greatest extent, where one openly defrauds another with bad merchandise, false measures, weights, coins, and by nimbleness and queer finances or dexterous tricks, takes advantage of him. Likewise, when one overcharges a person in a trade, and wantonly drives a hard bargain, skins and distresses him. And who can recount or think of all these things? To sum up, this is the commonest craft and the largest guild on earth. And if we regard the world throughout all conditions of life, it is nothing else than a vast, wide stall full of great thieves. Therefore, they are also called swivel chair robbers, land and highway robbers, not picklocks and sneak thieves who snatch away the ready cash, but who sit on the chair and are styled great noblemen and honorable, pious citizens, and yet rob and steal under a good pretext. Yes, here we might be silent about the trifling individual thieves if we were to attack the great, powerful arch-thieves with whom lords and princes keep company, who daily plunder not only a city or two, but all Germany. Yea, where we should place the head and supreme protector of all thieves, the holy chair at Rome with all its retinue, which has grabbed by theft the wealth of the whole world and holds it to this day. This is, in short, the course of the world, 
Whoever can steal and rob openly goes free and secure, unmolested by anyone, and even demands that he be honored. Meanwhile, the little sneak thieves, who have once trespassed, must bear the shame and punishment to render the former godly and honorable. But let them know that in the sight of God they are the greatest thieves and that he will punish them as they are worthy and deserve. Now, since this commandment is so far-reaching, as just indicated, it is necessary to urge it well and to explain it to the common people, not to let them go on in their wantonness and security, but always to place before their eyes the wrath of God and inculcate the same. For we have to preach this not to Christians, but chiefly to knaves and scoundrels, to whom it would be more fitting for judges, jailers, or master Hannes, the executioner, to preach. Therefore, let everyone know that it is his duty, at the risk of God's displeasure, not only to do no injury to his neighbor, nor to deprive him of gain, nor to perpetrate any act of unfaithfulness or malice in any bargain or trade, but faithfully to preserve his property for him, to secure and promote his advantage, especially when one accepts money, wages, and one's livelihood for such service. He now who wantonly despises this may indeed pass along and escape the hangman, but he shall not escape the wrath and punishment of God. And when he has long practiced his defiance and arrogance, he shall yet remain a tramp and beggar, and in addition have all plagues and misfortune. Now you are going your way while you ought to preserve the property of your master and mistress, for which service you fill your crop and maw, take your wages like a thief, have people treat you as a nobleman. For there are many that are even insolent toward their masters and mistresses and are unwilling to do them a favor or service by which to protect them from loss. But reflect what you will gain when, having come into your own property and being set up in your home, to which God will help with all misfortunes, it will bob up again and come home to you. And you will find that where you have cheated or done injury to the value of one might, you will have to pay thirty again. Such shall be the lot also of mechanics and day laborers, of whom we are now obliged to hear and suffer such intolerable maliciousness, as though they were noblemen in another's possessions, and every one were obliged to give them what they demand. Just let them continue practicing their exactions as long as they can, but God will not forget his commandment, and will reward them according as they have served, and will hang them, not upon a green gallows, but upon a dry one, so that all their life they shall neither prosper nor accumulate anything. And indeed, if there were a well-ordered government in the land, such wantonness might soon be checked and prevented, as was the custom in ancient times among the Romans, where such characters were promptly seized by the pate in a way that others took warning. No more shall all the rest prosper, who change the open free market into a carrion pit of extortion and a den of robbery. Where the poor are daily overcharged, new burdens and high prices are imposed, and everyone uses the market according to his caprice, and is even defiant and brags, as though it were his fair privilege and right to sell his goods for as high a price as he please, and no one had a right to say a word against it. We will indeed look on and let these people skin, pinch, and hoard, but we will trust in God, who will, however, do this of his own accord, 
that after you have been skinning and scraping for a long time, he will pronounce such a blessing on your gains that your grain in the garner, your beer in the cellar, your cattle in the stalls shall perish. Yea, where you have cheated and overcharged anyone to the amount of a florin, your entire pile shall be consumed with rust, so that you shall never enjoy it. And indeed, we see and experience this being fulfilled daily before our eyes, so that no stolen or dishonestly acquired possession thrives. How many there are who rake and scrape day and night and yet grow not a farthing richer. And though they gather much, they must suffer so many plagues and misfortunes that they cannot relish it with cheerfulness, nor transmit it to their children. But as no one minds it, and we go on as though it did not concern us, God must visit us in a different way and teach us manners by imposing one taxation after another, or billeting a troop of soldiers upon us, who in one hour empty our coffers and purses, and do not quit as long as we have a farthing left. And in addition, by way of thanks, burn and devastate house and home, and outrage and kill wife and children. And in short, if you steal much, depend upon it that again as much will be stolen from you. And he who robs and acquires with violence and wrong will submit to one who shall deal after the same fashion with him. For God is the master of this art, that since everyone robs and steals from the other, he punishes one thief by means of another. Else where should we find enough gallows and ropes? Now, whoever is willing to be instructed, let him know that this is the commandment of God and that it must not be treated as a jest. For although you despise us, defraud, steal, and rob, we will indeed manage to endure your haughtiness, suffer, and according to the Lord's prayer, forgive and show pity. For we know that the godly shall nevertheless have enough and you injure yourself more than another. But beware of this. When the poor man comes to you, of whom there are so many now, who must buy with the penny or of his daily wages and live upon it, and you are harsh to him, as though everyone lived by your favor, and you skin and scrape to the bone, and besides with pride and haughtiness, turn him off to whom you ought to give for, for nothing. He will go away wretched and sorrowful, and since he can complain to no one, he will cry out and call to heaven. Then beware, I say again, as of the devil himself. For such groaning and calling will be no jest, but will have a weight that will prove too heavy for you and all the world. For it will reach him who takes care of the poor sorrowful hearts and will not allow them to go unavenged. But if you despise this and become defiant, see whom you have brought upon you. If you succeed and prosper, you may before all the world call God and me a liar. We have exhorted, warned, and protested enough. He who will not heed or believe it may go on until he learns this by experience. Yet it must be impressed upon the young that they may be careful not to follow the old lawless crowd, but keep their eyes fixed upon God's commandment, lest his wrath and punishment come upon them too. It behooves us to do no more than to instruct and reprove with God's word, but to check such open wantonness there is need of the princes and government, who themselves would have eyes and the courage to establish and maintain order in all manner of trade and commerce, lest the poor be burdened and oppressed, nor they themselves be loaded with other men's sins. 
Let this suffice as an explanation of what stealing is, that it not be taken too narrowly, but made to extend as far as we have to do with our neighbors. And briefly, in a summary, as in the former commandments, it is herewith forbidden in the first place to do our neighbor any injury or wrong in whatever manner supposable by curtailing, forestalling, and withholding his possessions and property, or even to consent or allow such a thing, but to interpose and prevent it. And on the other hand, it is commanded that we advance and improve his possessions, and in case he suffers want, that we help, communicate, and lend both to friends and foes. Whoever now seeks and desires good works will find here more than enough such as are heartily acceptable and pleasing to God, and in addition are favored and crowned with excellent blessings, that we are to be richly compensated for all that we do for our neighbor's good and from friendship. As King Solomon also teaches, Proverbs 19.17, He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord, and that which he hath given will he pay him again. Here then you have such a rich Lord, who is certainly sufficient for you, and who will not suffer you to come short in anything or to want. Thus you can, with a joyful conscience, enjoy a hundred times more than you could scrape together with unfaithfulness and wrong. Now whoever does not desire the blessing will find wrath and misfortune enough. The Eighth Commandment Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. Over and above our own body, spouse, and temporal possessions, we have yet another treasure, namely, honor and good report, with which we cannot dispense. For it is intolerable to live among men in open shame and general contempt. Therefore, God wishes the reputation, good name, and upright character of our neighbor to be taken away or diminished as little as his money and possessions, that everyone may stand in his integrity before wife, children, servants, and neighbors. And in the first place, we take the plainest meaning of this commandment according to the words, Thou shalt not bear false witness, as pertaining to the public courts of justice, where a poor innocent man is accused and oppressed by false witnesses in order to be punished in his body, property, or honor. Now this appears as if it were of little concern to us at present, but with the Jews it was quite a common and ordinary matter. For the people were organized under an excellent and regular government, and where there is still such a government, instances of this sin will not be wanting. The cause of it is that where judges, burgomasters, princes, or others in authority sit in judgment, things never fail to go according to the course of the world. Namely, men do not like to offend anybody, flatter, and speak to gain favor, money, prospects, or friendship. And in consequence, a poor man in his cause must be oppressed, denounced as wrong, and suffer punishment. And it is a common calamity in the world that in courts of justice, there, is sel there seldom preside godly men. For to be a judge requires above all things a godly man, and not only a godly, but also a wise, modest, yea, a brave and bold man. Likewise, to be a witness requires a fearless and especially a godly man. For a person who is to judge all matters, 
rightly and carry them through with his decision will often offend good friends, relatives, neighbors, and the rich and powerful who can greatly serve or injure him. Therefore, he must be quite blind, have his eyes and ears closed, neither see nor hear, but go straight forward in everything that comes before him and decide accordingly. Therefore, this commandment is given first of all, that everyone shall help his neighbor to secure his rights and not allow them to be hindered or twisted, but shall promote and strictly maintain them, no matter whether he be judge or witness, and let it pertain to whatsoever it will. And especially is a goal set up here for our jurists, that they be careful to deal truly and uprightly with every case, allowing right to remain right, and on the other hand, not perverting anything, nor glossing over it or keeping silent concerning it, irrespective of a person's money, possession, honor, or power. This is one part and the plainest sense of this commandment concerning all that takes place in court. Next, it extends very much further if we are to apply it to spiritual jurisdiction or administration. Here, it is a common occurrence that everyone bears false witness against his neighbor. For wherever there are godly preachers and Christians, they must bear the sentence before the world that they are called heretics, apostates, yea, seditious and desperately wicked miscreants. Besides, the word of God must suffer in the most shameful and malicious manner, being persecuted, blasphemed, contradicted, perverted, and falsely cited and interpreted. But let this pass, for it is the way of the blind world that she condemns and persecutes the truth and the children of God, and yet esteems it no sin. In the third place, what concerns us all, this commandment forbids all sins of the tongue, whereby we may injure or approach too closely to our neighbor. For to bear false witness is nothing else than a work of the tongue. Now whatever is done with the tongue against a fellow man, God would have prohibited, whether it be false preachers with their doctrine and blasphemy, false judges and witnesses with their verdict, or outside of court by lying and evil speaking. Here belongs particularly the detestable, shameful vice of speaking behind a person's back and slandering, to which the devil spurs us on, and of which there would be much to be said. For it is a common evil plague that everyone prefers hearing evil to hearing good of his neighbor. And although we ourselves are so bad that we cannot suffer that anyone should say anything bad about us, but everyone would much rather that all the world should speak of him in terms of gold, yet we cannot bear that the best is spoken about others. Therefore, to avoid this vice, we should note that no one is allowed publicly to judge and reprove his neighbor, although he may see him sin, unless he have a command to judge and to reprove. For there is a great difference between these two things, judging sin and knowing sin. You may indeed know it, but you are not to judge it. I can indeed see and hear that my neighbor sins, but I have no command to report it to others. Now, if I rush in, judging and passing sentence, I fall into a sin which is greater than his. But if you know it, do nothing else than turn your ears into a grave and cover it. 
until you are appointed to be judge and to punish by virtue of your office. Those, then, are called slanderers, who are not content with knowing a thing, but proceed to assume jurisdiction. And when they know a slight offense of another, carry it into every corner, and are delighted and tickled that they can stir up another di- another's displeasure, as swine roll themselves in the dirt and root in it with the snout. This is nothing else than meddling with the judgment and office of God, and pronouncing sentence and judgment with the most severe verdict. For no judge can punish to a higher degree, nor go farther than to say, He is a thief, a murderer, a traitor, etc. Therefore, whoever presumes to say the same of his neighbor goes just as far as the emperor and all governments. For although you do not wield the sword, you employ your poisonous tongue to the shame and hurt of your neighbor. God, therefore, would have it prohibited that anyone speak evil of another, even though he be guilty, and the latter know it right well, much less if he do not know it, and have, have it only from hearsay. But you say, Shall I not say it, if it be the truth? Answer, Why do you not make accusation to regular judges? Ah, I cannot prove it publicly, and hence I might be silenced and turned away in a harsh manner. Ah, indeed. Do you smell the roast? If you do not trust yourself to stand before the proper authorities and to make answer, then hold your tongue. But if you know it, Know it for yourself and not for another. For if you tell it to others, although it be true, you will appear as a liar because you cannot prove it. And you are, besides, acting like a knave. For we ought never to deprive anyone of his honor or good name unless it be first taken away from him publicly. False witness, then, is everything which cannot be properly proved. Therefore, what is not manifest upon sufficient evidence, no one shall make public or declare for truth. And in short, whatever is secret should be allowed to remain secret, or at any rate, should be secretly reproved, as we shall hear. Therefore, if you encounter an idle tongue, which betrays and slanders someone, contradict such a one promptly to his face, that he may blush. Thus many a one will hold his tongue, Who else would bring some poor man into bad repute, from which he would not easily extricate himself? For honor and a good name are easily taken away, but not easily restored. Thus you see that it is summarily forbidden to speak any evil of our neighbor. However, the civil government, preachers, father and mother excepted, on the understanding that this commandment does not allow evil to go unpunished. Now, as according to the fifth commandment, no one is to be injured in body, and yet Master Hannes, the executioner, is accepted, who by virtue of his office does his neighbor no good, but only evil and harm, and nevertheless does not sin against God's commandment, because God has on his own account instituted that office for he has reserved punishment for his own good pleasure as he threatens in the first commandment. Just so also, although no one has a right in his own person to judge and condemn anybody, yet if they to whose office it belongs fail to do it, 
they sin as well as he who would do so of his own accord without such office. For here, necessity requires one to speak of the evil, to prefer charges, to investigate and testify, and it is not different from the case of a physician who is sometimes compelled to examine and handle the patient whom he is to cure in secret parts. Just so, governments, father and mother, brothers and sisters, and other good friends are under obligation to each other to reprove evil wherever it is needful and profitable. But the true way in this matter would be to observe the order according to the gospel, Matthew 18, 15, where Christ says, If thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Here you have a precious and excellent teaching for governing well the tongue, which is to be carefully observed against this detestable misuse. Let this then be your rule, that you do not too readily spread evil concerning your neighbor and slander him to others, but admonish him privately, that he may amend. Likewise also, if someone report to you what this or that one has done, teach him too to go and admonish him personally, if he have seen it himself, but if not, that he hold his tongue. The same you can learn also from the daily government of the household. For when the master of the house sees that the servant does not do what he ought, he admonishes him personally. But if he were so foolish as to let the servant sit at home and went on the streets to complain of him to his neighbors, he would no doubt be told, You fool, what does that concern us? Why do you not tell it to him? Behold, that would be acting quite brotherly so that the evil would be stayed and your neighbor would retain his honor. As Christ also says in the same place, If he hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Then you have done a great and excellent work, for do you think it is a little matter to gain a brother? Let all monks and holy orders step forth, with all their works melded together into one mass, and see if they can boast that they have gained a brother. Further, Christ teaches, But if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more, that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. So he whom it concerns is always to be treated with personally, and not to be spoken of without his knowledge. But if that do not avail, then bring it publicly before the community, whether before the civil or the ecclesiastical tribunal. For then you do not stand alone, but you have those witnesses with you by whom you can convict the guilty one, relying on whom the judge can pronounce the sentence and punish. This is the right and regular course for checking and reforming a wicked person. But if we gossip about another in all corners and stir the filth, no one will be reformed. And afterwards, when we are to stand up and bear witness, we deny having said so. Therefore, it would serve such tongues right if their itch for slander were severely punished as a warning to others. If you were acting for your neighbor's reformation or from love of the truth, you would not sneak about secretly, nor shun the day and the light. All this has been said regarding secret sins. But where the sin is quite public, so that the judge and everybody know it, 
you can, without any sin, avoid him and let him go, because he has brought himself into disgrace. And you may also publicly testify concerning him. For when a matter is public in the light of day, there can be no slandering or false judging or testifying. As when we now reprove the Pope with his doctrine, which is publicly set forth in books and proclaimed in all the world. For where the sin is public, the reproof also must be public, that everyone may learn to guard against it. Thus we have now the sum and general understanding of this commandment, to wit, that no one do any injury with the tongue to his neighbor, whether friend or foe, nor speak evil of him, no matter whether it be true or false, unless it be done by commandment or for his reformation. But that everyone employ his tongue and make it serve for the best of everyone else, to cover up his neighbor's sins and infirmities, excuse them, palliate and garnish them with his own reputation. The chief reason for this should be the one which Christ alleges in the gospel, in which he comprehends all commandments respecting our neighbor. Matthew 7.12 Whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. Even nature teaches the same thing in our own bodies. As St. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 12, 22, Much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary, and those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. No one covers his face, eyes, nose, and mouth, for they, being in themselves the most honorable members which we have, do not require it. But the most infirm members, of which we are ashamed, we cover with all diligence. Hands, eyes, and the whole body must help to cover and conceal them. Thus also among ourselves should we adorn whatever blemishes and infirmities we find in our neighbor, and serve and help him to promote his honor to the best of our ability and, on the other hand, prevent whatever may be discreditable to him. And it is especially an excellent and noble virtue for one always to explain advantageously and put the best construction upon all he may hear of his neighbor, if it not be notoriously evil, or, at any rate, to condone it over and against the poisonous tongues that are busy wherever they can pry out and discover something to blame in a neighbor and that explain and pervert it in the worst way, as is done now especially with the precious word of God and its preachers. There are comprehended, therefore, in this commandment, quite a multitude of good works which please God most highly, and bring abundant good and blessing, if only the blind world and the false saints would recognize them. For there is nothing on or in entire man which can do both greater and more extensive good or harm in spiritual and in temporal matters than the tongue, though it is the least and feeblest member. (laughs) 